thanks so much for coming out today. And uh, I guess I was going to begin my talk with some kind of disclaimer about uh, indeed not being a specialist on Annie Albers uh, or on weaving. Uh, but then I thought actually David gave me a, a better way of putting it, put, to put it in positive terms and to call myself instead a, a specialist in uh, generalization and uh, nuance avoidance. Uh, so uh, we'll see how, how that goes uh, uh, today. But I really would like to thank, um, thank our hosts here at UCL, to thank Brioni and to thank Marta and the team uh, for putting this all together. Um, maybe I want to start at uh, the Crystal Palace, um, start in the late spring of 1851 uh, with a visitor to the exhibition, uh, uh, the middle-aged German architect Gottfried Zemper, who uh, uh, comes and spends time at the Great Exhibition in London. Uh, he was in London, actually, not, not to visit the show. He was living here at the time, right? He was, uh, at that moment, in exile. He had been a participant in the um, failed uprising in Dresden in uh, 1849 alongside uh, colleagues like Wagner and Mikhail Bakunin and the like, um, and had to go into exile, was living here, and uh, actually worked on the advisory committee that put together the exhibition and, um, and has a revelation, in a way, in the show. In Paxton's glass cage, right, the, the kind of height of 19th century, mid-19th century building technology, uh, Zemper comes across a modest exhibit that, that deeply fascinates him. It's a, a model for a bamboo hut from the Caribbean. Uh, a so-called uh, primitive structure right? that seems to Zemper to hold the key to understanding architecture's origins. I mean, it distilled for him uh, what he believed were the four elements of architecture, uh, the title of an 1851 essay that he writes here in London after uh, seeing the exhibition. Uh, the four elements being uh, the hearth, you know, the fire around which people gathered, um, a, a, a substructure or platform of compacted earth that, that brings the hearth up above the damp ground, um, a roof structure above to, uh, to protect it, and finally, um, enclosure, right? which, although listed as the, the fourth of these elements, is actually the, the key to the whole undertaking. Because, uh, and, and it's interesting, I mean, enclosure is not, for Zemper, a, a structural element. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't hold the building up, but it's nevertheless the, the crucial architectural component in this schema. The enclosure that's made from um, wattle or, or, or of hides or of textiles that are placed between those vertical posts that support the roof. And, and, and this enclosure isn't simply functional. It's not there simply to keep out the wind and the cold, but it has an almost um, ontological force as um, uh, uh, the element that, for the first time in human history, provides a sense of spatial enclosure uh, that forms uh, the first walls. I mean, if, if architecture, as uh, you know, modernists like Annie Albers believed, is an art of volume, it is the very thing that creates volume for the first time. I feel like I'm ringing here somehow. Um, the implication is crucial uh, because it, 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 it's, there's the idea that the art of building originates among those who 
wove the mats and made the carpets that form this enclosure, that the art of building originates in handicraft. And that 1851 display seemed to Zemper uh, conclusive evidence, uh, as he says, right, from ethnology for architecture's origins in weaving. This is how he puts it in the 1851 essay. And, and I mean, obviously here, I mean, we should say, um, as much as he's thinking about the you know, ontology of architecture, the ontology of spatial enclosure, it's couched, and, and as much as he's you know, wanting to root it in this kind of historical grounding, it is very much um, rooted in the colonialist discourse of its time and, and rooted in um, a, sense of, a, a, a set of presuppositions uh, about um, primitivism and origins that are entirely problematic. This is how he puts it. It's well known that even now, tribes in an early stage of their development apply their budding artistic instinct to the braiding and weaving of mats and covers. The wildest tribes are nevertheless familiar with the hedge fence, the crudest wicker work, and the most primitive pen or spatial enclosure made from tree branches. And you know, very quickly, he sees this um, um, weaving of branches leading to the weaving of plant fibers, uh, uh, wicker work moving on to mats and finally to carpets, all these woven materials forming the first walls, what, what Zemper calls the original space dividers. I'm sure in a long German cog cognate term, I have no doubt. Um, so this is interesting, right? Because, I mean, the wall for Zemper isn't the heavy stone barrier, right? I mean, in German, you would say Mauer, right? Uh, uh, which he sees as having a completely different origin. Uh, uh, masonry for him derives from uh, techniques of agricultural terracing. But spatial enclosure has a different origin, an origin in, in, in fabric. And he sees that as evidenced in the German language itself, right? I mean, as opposed to the Mauer, we have the word Wand in German, meaning wall or, or partition or screen. And he sees the term Wand as related to the term Gewand, meaning dress or garments or clothing, right? So we have Wand and Gewand, both deriving from a common uh, proto-Indo-European root. I mean, like, I come here, like, am I an art historian, an, an etymologist? I'll maybe be an entomologist by the end of the talk, I, covering it all. Um, so Wand and Gewand having a, a common root in this term, uh, Wend, meaning uh, to wind or to turn or to braid, which is, of course, also the, the origin of the German term uh, Weben, uh, to weave. Right. So Zemper's emphasis is going to be on this idea that such woven material um, provides a kind of um, counter model to the bare structural frame of Enlightenment architectural theory. It's, it's, a, it's an, uh, a rejection of the, the naked hut of Logier with its stark Rousseauian idealism. Uh, you see it kind of imaged most famously here in the frontispiece of the Abbé Logier's uh, second edition of his essay on architecture from 1755. I mean, that, that um, uh, structural form uh, that's so celebrated in modernism, uh, Zemper wants to provide us with an alternative to. For Zemper, on the contrary, uh, the key to architecture was not in the, the structural form of the upright trees supporting the roof, but was in its clothing. To again quote the um, 1851 essay, hanging carpets remained the true walls 
the visible boundaries of space. The often solid walls behind them were necessary for reasons that had nothing to do with the creation of space. Uh, they were needed for security, for supporting a load, for their permanence, and so on. Wherever the need for these secondary functions did not arise, the carpets remained the original means of separating space. I mean, it's a, it's a sentiment, of course, echoed a half century later by Adolf Loos when he famously writes, in the beginning was cladding. Again, another German term with a interesting uh, ambiguity, uh, 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 cladding, uh, bekleidung, uh, which could also refer to clothing, right? Not just the cladding of a building, but to human cladding. Such woven fabrics, whether carpet or tapestry, did not simply, I think we have to emphasize, did not simply subdivide a pre-existent space. Uh, they didn't, you know, um, reinforce an already established distinction between interior and exterior, but rather they actively generated space, uh, produced the very concept of dwelling. Mark Wigley, uh, the architectural historian, uh, put it uh, this way. It's not that the fabrics are arranged in a way that provides physical shelter. Rather, their texture, their sensuous play, their textuality, like that of the languages that Zemper studied, opens up a space of exchange. The interior is not defined by a continuous enclosure of walls, but by the folds, twists, and turns of an often discontinuous ornamental surface. So um, when Zemper wrote that the bamboo hut corresponded to its Vitruvian antecedent in all its elements, he meant it rather literally. Uh, we can almost see the account of architecture's origins in Zemper as, a, as providing a, I mean, I think what he thought he was doing at least was providing a historical or, or anthropological grounding to the speculations first laid out by the Roman architectural theorist Vitruvius at the opening of the second book of uh, De Architectura. Uh, that's where, I mean, do, I, I'm sure I don't need to remind you, but uh, just in case you haven't opened up your Vitruvius lately, um, it's where he uh, describes the, the first dwellings of, of early humanity in these terms. At first, with upright forked props and twigs put between, they wove their walls. You see them weaving their walls right here on the, on the right. Now that passage and the illustration of it found in Cesariano's edition of Vitruvius of 1521 has struck architectural historian Indra McEwen with its direct echo of weaving. Vitruvius's first structure, she writes, is that of an upright Greek loom, like the one pictured here on this black figure Lekythos, which not coincidentally is the third plate in Annie Albers's On Weaving. It's the loom that was found in every Greek household, with its two upright posts capped by a beam from which the, warp, the, the weighted warp threads were hung. Um, that form for McEwen is um, a kind of primordial instance of the post and lintel architecture that would be central to the ancient Greek world. So she sees in the very form of the loom itself a kind of architectural echo. Um, a decade after publishing his 1851 essay, 
in the first volume of his monumental style in the technical and tectonic arts, a volume, of course, entirely devoted to textiles. Zemper confirmed his belief that these traditional domestic crafts, coded as feminine, belong at the center of the story of architecture's origins, insisting that, ha uh, that what had once been regarded as purely secondary and supplemental to the structural task of building was, in fact, primary. Or, as anthropologist Tim Ingold would say, we've, we've heard uh, uh, Ingold mentioned already today once, uh, as Tim Ingold would say, uh, the world of our experience is indeed continually and endlessly coming into being around us as we weave. Okay, Caroline, finally, I'm going to give you a knot. Um, at the heart of these ancient techniques was, for Zemper, the knot, the interlacing of flexible fibers that he once again, through a creative etymology, linked to tectonic form. Um, Zemper connects the terms the German terms knot, N-A-H-T, which means a seam or a join, with knoten, not proper. So knot and knoten are related through an elusive relation to the Greek term ananke, meaning, meaning force, constraint, or necessity. Uh, uh, ananke, its personification in Greece, of course, often depicted holding a spindle already linked to, uh, to, uh, to thread, there. Um, by linking the, the fibrous knot with the tectonic joint, Zemper really elevates the, the knot as joint to the fundamental tectonic component of building. I mean, to say with Zemper that the beginning of building coincides with the beginning of textiles is to say that building starts with the knot. Skip over one. Um, but what does it mean to make a knot? I think the answer to this question may well be um, a, a challenge to some of our long-established conceptions of human making in general. I mean, and, and here, I, here I really am largely, I should say, echoing arguments made by Tim Ingold um, in his in his writing. I mean, traditionally, we've distinguished, um, when we think about making, we, we distinguish between form and substance, between design and the raw material out of which it's made. Um, and we understand that, that making happens precisely where matter, where that substance or raw material meets the space of action of those forces that impinge upon it as a surface to be transformed. I mean, think about a, a sculptor carving a block of stone. I mean, it's an oddly atavistic comparison, but sorry. Um, or, you know, a blacksmith hammering metal. That's, I mean, well, I live in upstate New York. I mean, this is what it's like. We don't have, you know, I mean, this is actually just a solid block of steel. Uh, I just carry it around to look, look like I'm in the 21st century. Um, in any case, um, that's traditionally how we've thought about making as, a, as a, 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 a surface to be transformed. But the knot and the act of weaving that it's built upon fundamentally reconfigures those relations of surface, force, and the generation of form. Because it doesn't entail the alteration of a surface. Materials 
are not so much transformed as, as built up. I mean, to come back to the, 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 that notion of vend, they're, they're wound, they're twisted, they're braided. The labor of the knot is that of a pattern of skilled movement and its rhythmic repetition. This is how the form of the work arises. I think that's Ingold's great insight into the challenge weaving poses to conventional notions of making. In it, form is the result of the gradual unfolding of that field of forces set up through the active and sensuous engagement of practitioner and material. Uh, the field is neither internal to the material nor internal to the practitioner. Rather, it cuts across the emergent interface between them. Form, that is, arises in a space shared by the material and the practitioner. Um, it does not arise simply as a mold imposed upon brute matter. And this, I think, is a clear refutation of that position articulated maybe most famously by Marx and Capital that what defines human activity, what sets it apart from that of animals, is its purposive character, that it's planned beforehand. I mean, in a famous passage, right, Marx describes how a bee would put many a human architect to shame by the construction of its honeycomb cells. But, Marx reminds us, what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is that the architect builds the cell in his mind before he constructs it in wax. I mean, what's less often recalled, of course, is that Marx precedes the bee architect comparison with another closer to our own concerns. A, a spider conducts operations which resemble those of the weaver, he says. I mean, and Marx, of course, uses that juxtaposition to show how, as opposed to the insensate animal life, in human activity, a result emerges that had already been conceived by the worker at the beginning, hence already existed, ideally existed in the mind. But that's what our new materialisms are disputing, the sovereignty of that vision of homo faber, the weaver as spider. I mean, I don't want to reduce the weaver to a spider, certainly. Well, maybe I do, but that's another. I don't have time for that. Uh, I'm going to say that um, I might conclude by recalling three points made by Engold regarding human technical ability via weaving. First of all, that weaving is not a property or skill of the individual in isolation, but is part of a whole system of relations. The artisan in her richly structured environment, that field of forces between um, um, maker and material. Second, that weaving as making is not the application of external force to materials, but the attentive perceptual involvement with them. I'm out of time. Uh, care, judgment, dexterity, and the like. And finally, that weaving has a, a narrative quality, with each movement growing rhythmically out of the one before it and leading on to the next. Um, maybe I would just end by, by, by saying, like, by, by making a cautionary note, because I, I'm aware, I, or I've become aware in, the, the, in thinking about this talk, the, the danger that, um, in a sense, like, just as we're finally presenting Albers as an artist, as a, as a, a central figure within um, modernist experiment, 
I, now I come along and 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 you know I'm trying I'm working to to dethrone some kind of sovereign figure, and uh, I recognize the um, the danger of kind of pulling the rug out of our central protagonist here. But that that's not really my intention. I would say, um, maybe I would put it differently to say that um, rather what I'm trying to do is is to say that the the recognition of Albers's work, the recognition of what's truly, uh, for me, innovative and crucial about it, um, requires precisely a larger reassessment of what making in modernism or making in the most experimental ends of modernism uh, might actually entail. I'm not going to talk about spiders in the end, which is good because spiders are gross, obviously. But just to say that, um, if we're just to say if you know we were to consider it, we would want to think about not only the weaver as a spider, but the spider as a weaver and very strange um, early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century experiments in uh, in, in weaving, in, in in conscripting spiders into the industrial production of uh, thread. Another weird colonial project, but that's some. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be giving that talk this evening out in the hallway. So <laughs> thank you, thank you so much.